Exodus chapter 34 and keep your place in Acts 6. As soon as we're done in Exodus 34, we'll jump back over to Acts. There's one more verse we're going to cover at the end of Acts chapter 6. And I want to just remind you of where we're at contextually in our series, our study in the book of Acts. From verse 8 there in chapter 6 until the end of the chapter, and really it's going to continue through the beginning of chapter 8, a man named Stephen comes front and center. He is a man, we are told, who is full of faith and power. He's the first one who is mentioned by name outside of the apostles who performs miracles and wonders among the people. And as we have seen throughout this series, where God is at work, the enemies of God show up. So mark that down. Don't be confused by that. It's going to happen. This time, there's an attack from the members of the synagogue. Up until now, it had been primarily the temple folks. Now it's the synagogue folks. And they're disputing with Stephen. But because Stephen was full of the Holy Ghost, they were unable to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. And true to form, the enemy used the same tactics they had previously used against Jesus. You know, the Bible says, don't be ignorant of his devices. Why? Satan uses the same thing over and over again. And that's what he does here with the death of Stephen, as as we've already looked at in chapter 6. But he shows up with the same tactics. They come upon Stephen. They forcefully take him to stand trial before the religious council. And they found a false witness to testify against Stephen, and they accused him of speaking blasphemous words against Moses, against God, against the temple, and against the law. And this is what they said. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And of course, all of that was true. But of course, Stephen was only preaching the Word of God. Their problem was they had corrupted the Word of God and they had elevated Moses to a place of worship. And really, the temple had become their idol. And I just want to give you a little bit on that before we get into this. Remember when Jesus first cleansed the temple in John chapter 2, the religious Jews came and asked Jesus, What sign showest thou us, seeing that thou doest these things? And that's when Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And though He was speaking of His body, they took offense. They shot back at Jesus. Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? You see, they loved that temple. So much so, this was the accusation that the false witnesses brought against Jesus when He was on trial before the council. Matthew 26, 61, This fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to, build it, and to build it in three days. In fact, they were so upset at the idea of their temple being destroyed that when Jesus was dying on the cross, they said in Matthew 27, 40, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. They had been guilty of worshiping the building above the God of the building. And in so doing, 
They were like their father Jacob instead of their father Israel. And yes, I'm aware that they are one and the same person. But their two different names represent two different characters. In Genesis 28, where Jacob had the vision of the ladder, he called that place Bethel, which means the house of God. In Genesis 32, he wrestled with God and there he was converted and God changed his name to Israel. Then in Genesis 35, he returns to Bethel or Bethel and this time he builds an altar, but he calls it El Bethel, which means the God of the house of God. You see, there is a change in Jacob's life. Before, he had only acknowledged the house of God But once he had entered into a personal relationship with God, he acknowledged the God of the house of God. And listen, this is what makes all the difference between religion and a relationship. Well, the council, they're still like Jacob here before he became Israel. They recognized the house of God, but they did not have a relationship with the God of the house of God. In so doing, they worshiped the house not the God of the house. And now, they're furious at Stephen for preaching against their religious system. Adam Clark observed this, Is it possible to look at this without seeing the mighty hand of God in the whole? He permits devils and wicked men to work, to avail themselves of all their advantages, yet counterworks all their plots and designs, turns their weapons against themselves, and promotes his cause by the very means that were used to destroy it. How true is the saying, there is neither might nor counsel against the Lord, end quote. And so here's Stephen, he's before the council, and this brings us to where we left off last time, and we'll be over there in just a minute, but before we do, look with me here in Exodus chapter 34, I want to read verses 28 through 35. Exodus 34, beginning in verse 28, the Bible says, Speaking of Moses, and he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He did neither eat bread nor drink water, and he wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And it came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony in Moses' hand, when he came down from the mount, that Moses wist not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with them. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come nigh him. And Moses called unto them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned unto him, and Moses talked with them. And afterward, all the children of Israel came nigh, and he gave them in commandment all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. Until Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face." But when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he took the veil off until he came out. And he came out and spake unto the children of Israel that which he was commanded. And the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. And Moses put the veil upon his face again until he went in to speak with him. Now you'll remember the first time that Moses went up the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights to receive the law of God. God had told Moses, you need to get down the mountain because the people have already corrupted themselves in making and worshiping a golden calf. When Moses descended and saw what was going on, the Bible says Moses' anger waxed hot and he cast the tables out of his hands and he broke them beneath the mount. 
And so this account here in chapter 34 is the second time that Moses is going up the mountain before the presence of God to receive the commandments on the table of stone. And once again, for 40 days and 40 nights. And so this may have been a total of 80 altogether. But another 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord, um, He goes up there with the Lord to be alone. And listen, for that amount of time, the Lord was Moses' portion. Right? Because He did neither eat nor drink. God was all His sustenance and all that He needed. When He came down, He's unaware that His face is shining. And the people were afraid to approach Moses, and so they put a veil on his face as he gave God's commandment to them. The first half of the last verse here says, The children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. With that scene in mind, let's go to Acts chapter 6. And we're going to focus tonight on verse 15. But I'm going to read verses 11 through 15 for context. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 11, the Bible says, Then they suborned men which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. So here in verse 15, we get this break from the narrative and we get a description of Stephen's countenance. Luke is the penman of the book of Acts. And though it appears that Luke won't show up until Acts chapter 16, this reads like Luke is present. It reads like an eyewitness account. Now, there's no doubt that Luke is under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost here, and therefore there would be no reason for an eyewitness account. But because of how this reads, it has led some to suggest that perhaps the Apostle Paul is the one who is relaying this information to Luke. For those who don't know, the Apostle Paul was first known as Saul of Tarsus. And we know Saul is present here this day. We're going to see at the beginning of chapter 8 and verse 1, and Saul was consenting unto his death, speaking of Stephen's. Saul may have been, we we touched on this earlier in the series, Saul may have been present when all of those in the synagogues are listed in verse 9 here in this chapter, because the synagogue of Cilicia is listed, and that's where Saul of Tarsus was from. Or it could be Saul shows up as a member of the council in verse 12. But either way, Saul is present this day. And and Saul's going to testify in Acts 22-20, And when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by and consenting unto his death, and kept the raiment of them that slew him. So where would Saul, if, if, if this line of thinking holds any water, where would Saul get this idea of Stephen's face shining like an angel. Well, there's Saul's conversion. Don't forget that. When he was on the road to Damascus, he saw the light from heaven above the brightness of the sun, and he could not see for the glory of that light. Not to mention, Paul had been caught up to the third heaven, and he would have seen angels. And to further the thought that Paul may be the one testifying of this, Paul was a Pharisee. 
You say, well, why is that important? Because the Sadducees did not believe in angels. And it's talking about the council seeing him as having a face of an angel. And so it could be a Pharisee is relaying this information, the, the Apostle Paul, that is. So uh, just something to, to consider here. There's room to suggest that Saul is the one giving this information to Luke. But of course, however it happened, it would have been under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. And so I guess I'm just wasting time tonight. Amen. Ultimately, it doesn't really matter if it's from God to Luke or if it's from God to Paul to Luke. <laughs> um, it's here. And he has a face uh, of an angel, as it were, the face of an angel. And so no one had to see an angel in order to make the connection, is what I'm saying. Um, it's probably a proverbial expression anyway. Uh, but regardless, all of that's just gee whiz to provoke thought. What, what is significant is that Stephen's face was as it had been the face of an angel. Now, this is why I wanted to begin by reading over in Exodus chapter 34, because this is very interesting. Here we have this religious crowd accusing Stephen of blaspheming Moses, blaspheming the law, blaspheming the temple, seeking to change the customs of Moses. And as they fix their eyes upon Stephen, they look steadfastly upon him. His face appears as if it had been the face of an angel. Now, it doesn't say that his face is shining. I understand that. But I believe this is the implication and the connection we are meant to see here. Remember when the women came to the sepulcher after, um, well, Jesus had resurrected. They had come to anoint his body. But they saw an angel, and the Bible says the angel's countenance was like lightning. And so I think the idea here is that Stephen's face is radiant. Now, I say this because for some of you who study this, you'll find that there's people who will try to explain away the radiance of it and just say, no, it's really just talking about he was a man of courage and he had wisdom and all this. No, I think his face was, was doing something supernatural here. You don't have to agree with that. That's my opinion. But it, I believe we're meant to make the connection between Moses and Stephen. There was an obvious... Re, this is God here, I believe, is rebuking the council. And he's making it obvious because they're accusing Stephen of blaspheming Moses. They're accusing him of, of wanting to change those laws. But God is showing who truly had his law in his heart. They accuse Stephen of blaspheming the, the temple, but God is showing who he dwelled with. They accuse Stephen of blaspheming Moses, and yet God anoint Stephen with the very same glory that Moses Stephen was guilty. Why would God do this for Stephen? Did I say that right? If Stephen is guilty, why would God do this same thing He did for Moses to Stephen? Do you see the connection? Moses, who received the old covenant law from God, had a supernatural appearance. And here's Stephen preaching the new covenant from God. And he's anointed with a supernatural appearance. Stephen is preaching how Jesus would change the customs which Moses delivered. And here's God putting His approval upon the preaching of the new covenant. Obviously, the council was not ignorant of Moses. These were learned men when it came to the first five books, for sure. And they revered Moses. We've already covered that last time. They would have known that Moses' face was shining when he came down the mountain. 
God intended for them to make this connection because how could Stephen have this countenance unless he was of God, just as Moses was of God? Now listen, this is the goodness of God to the council. And I try to highlight this all the time if you haven't noticed. This is God being good to wicked people. I mean, He's giving them a clear sign here. And, and they were always wanting a sign. And yet they're missing it. And so it's, it's the goodness of God, but it's also letting the reader know, I've done, everything, God, I've done everything I can to reach, and they are not turning to me. And so God is being good here in doing this. They ought to have been cut to their heart to repent. But instead, we'll see at the end of chapter 7, they're cut to their heart with indignation. So here's Stephen, his face as if it were an angel, and he's standing in the face of opposition. But Stephen was not alone, amen? God was with him. And no doubt the angels were attending and ministering to Stephen. And Stephen is an amazing study because he is so much like our Lord in death. Now think about what verse 15 is saying. By Stephen having a face as it had been the face of an angel, he's taking on the appearance of those who are not of this world, of whom the world is not worthy. In fact, Stephen was on his way to the other side already. He's going to be there soon, as we know. And so it's almost as if God's already got him prepared for the next world to come. He's going to see the glory of God as Jesus receives Stephen into heaven. He's already being prepared at the end of chapter 6 for where he's heading at the end of chapter 7. If you've ever been on the, at the bedside of those dying, you know what I'm talking about. There's things that happen that are really unexplainable apart from the fact that they're seeing something on the other side. Now, I think it's worth our time to consider why is Stephen's face taking on this appearance? Not so that we can try to come up with a formula to duplicate it. It's unlikely this is going to happen to you. It was a very unusual circumstance, and I don't think in the future it'll happen with any frequency. In fact, off the top of my head, it only happens three times in Scripture. One would be with Moses, one would be with Stephen, and one would be with Jesus, and that's over a 4,000-year span. And it's no surprise Jesus would. He's God, amen? He's God in the flesh. Now, I've already read the account of Moses. We're looking at the account of Stephen. But remember the account on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to a high mountain and was transfigured before them. And the Bible says Jesus' face did shine as the sun. They were privileged to catch a glimpse of our Lord's glory. John would later get another glimpse on of Christ's glory on the Isle of Patmos in the Revelation in verse uh, 16 of chapter 1. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And so, though this is a unique occurrence, we should still consider the events because this really is a blessed occurrence that is taking place. And while our faces may or may not take on the appearance of uh, like this countenance here, we, we do see there is a difference, I believe, of those who are walking with God and those who aren't. There ought to be a difference. Your countenance ought to look different when you receive the same news the world receives. What makes the difference? Well, remember when Moses was on the mount with God, God was his provision. God was His provision. 
Exodus 34, 28. And he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He did neither eat bread nor drink water. Not only was God Moses' portion, but Moses was also dwelling in the presence of God. And here's Stephen. He's taking on the, the appearance of those who dwell in the presence of God. I'm sure you're aware of how people take on the appearance and characteristics of those they are around most. And, and I prepared tonight's sermon separate from this morning's sermon by quite a bit. I didn't realize they were going to mesh together this way. It's been a busy month, so I've had to prepare ahead of time. <laughs> but you take on the characteristics of those you're around the most. Amen. I've never seen somebody look like they belong to the hip-hop crowd in the country-western crowd. I'm just saying. I'm not knocking. I'm just saying. i never seen somebody who's gothic. Anyway, we better stop. Uh, you, you take on certain attitudes. You take on the same characteristics. And it's all about the company you keep. And the fact is, sometimes when we are alone, we're bad company. Because in our flesh, there dwells no good thing. So, what I'm telling you right now, it's not a matter of isolation. It's not a matter of, I'm just going to excuse myself from the world, and I'll be okay, and I'll be more like my Lord. That's not what I'm saying. Moses came down the mountain beaming with the radiance of God upon his face because he had just spent 40 days and nights in the presence of God where God was all in all in his life. So is God all you need? Is He really all you need? Are you content with God in this life? Is God who you desire to spend time with? Is God your provision in this life? Your countenance won't take on God's glory unless you spend time in His presence. God, listen, He must have the preeminence in your life. He must be your portion. He must be your life. What else makes the difference? Well, we know from verse 5 that Stephen was a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. In verse 7, it reiterates that Stephen was full of faith and of power. Now, how do we receive faith? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Stephen was a man of God's Word, which is going to be evident when we look in chapter 7. Moses was receiving the Word of God. Stephen had God's Word in his heart. And both of these men ended up with a heavenly countenance. Because Stephen was a man of God's Word, and because Stephen was full of the Holy Ghost, Stephen was a man of wisdom. In verse 10, they were not able to resist the wisdom and the Spirit by which he spoke. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 1 says this, Who is as the wise man, and who knoweth the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom maketh his face to shine, and the boldness of his face shall be changed. And so, if we're going to stand out in this world in a good way, if we're going to stand out in this world with a countenance from heaven, then we must spend time with God. How do we do that? We do so through His Word. We do so through prayer. We spend time with Him. And our face may not literally shine, but we can still shine as lights in a dark world. Amen. That's what we're called to do. The question then, get this, isn't just, are you spending time with God? 
but are you spending time with God through His Word? Listen, I've known people that have told me they spend time with God and yet they come away with things that ain't in the Word of God. No, you didn't spend time with God. If you did, it wouldn't contradict the Word of God. So it's not, oh yeah, I spent time with God today. Did, Did you spend time in His Word? If you're coming away with something contrary to God's Word, that's a major problem. Of course, since most of these people aren't in the Word of God, they don't even know it. They sit down in the office and they say, I had this revelation, or my daughter had this revelation. It's always, anyway, I better shut up there. And it it ends up being this thing where it's like, well, was she aware of this passage? Because God did not call her to pastor. Yeah, we just got real. All right, well, we're having fun tonight. It's a major problem if you spend time with God and you walk away with something not from God's Word. Amen. Amen. All right, let's close tonight by going to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's uh, consider this need to have God's Word in order to have God's glory just a little bit further, and then I'll be done. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, let's read verses 5 through 18. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also made us able ministers of the New Testament. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stone, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no power in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth. In other words, both are glorious, but one is going to exceed the other in glory. Are you following this? Verse 11, For if that which is done away was glorious much more that which remaineth is glorious. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished, but their minds were blinded. For until this day there remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart." Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And so what this is saying is when our hearts turn to Christ for salvation, the veil is removed. And I realize the context is more specifically to the children of Israel, But certainly we know from chapter 4, if we were to keep reading, we'll we'll gain insight that Satan hath blinded the minds uh, of people so they won't believe the gospel. And so when our hearts turn to the Lord, God removes the veil, and then we are blessed with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We receive liberty and understanding of the Word of God. This is why if somebody says, I never get anything out of the Word of God, search yourself to see whether you be in the faith. Amen. And then as we look into the Word of God unveiled, 
we are to behold the glory of the Lord. And through this time with God in His Word, we are changed into His image from glory to glory. And as we spend time with Him through the Word, we become more like Him. We reflect the glory of Christ and His likeness. James put it this way in James 1, 23-25. For if any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the word, this same man shall be blessed in his deed. You see, the Word of God is a mirror. It reflects who we are and who Christ is. And through its transforming power, because the Word of God is quick, it's powerful, it's it's alive. It discerns our thoughts and intents of the heart. And through time in the Word of God, we are changed into the glory of Christ. And isn't this really the ultimate goal? After all, believers are what? Predestined to be conformed into the image of God's dear Son. And so, if you're struggling, and I'm I'm raising my hand, okay? I'm preaching to me. If you're struggling, it's because you're not in the Word of God the way you ought to be. Come on now, help me preach. We have got to spend time with God in His Word. And I don't mean just spend time in His Word so we can check the box hand in a blue sheet and say, ha ha. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about we're spending time in His Word so we can see who we are and who He is and the help that we need and how we can be transformed into His image. Because that's what the world needs. They don't need me showing up, amen? They need God to show up. Well, we got to spend time in His Word. In creation, man was created in the likeness and image of God. But that image was defaced by sin. A marred image took that place. But once we are born again, we begin to receive a new image in Christ. I love the hymns of the faith. Just to be frank with you, it's one of the reasons I'm an independent Baptist. I love the hymns. Because they teach us doctrine. You see, what we try to do is present songs before us as a congregation that don't just move us emotionally. I'm good with being moved emotionally. I'm an emotional guy. But there's got to be doctrine with that. Or else it becomes a zeal without knowledge, as Paul wrote. And so I love these hymns of the faith. They contain doctrine. Consider this phrase out of the hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It says, Adam's likeness now efface. Stamp thine image in its place. Final Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. That's what happened. The the image we once had was effaced. It was taken away. We received the, the, the image of Adam. And in Christ, we want that image to be effaced. And we want to take on the image of Christ. And so if you're in Christ tonight, you you already have this image in a sense, right? But the fact is, we are all still robed in this flesh. 
And in our flesh, we have problems. And we are now in this continual state of being changed, being conformed into His image. How? By communing with God in His Word and in prayer. We're spending time with Him. Who you spend time with is who you take on the appearance of. And we are being changed into His image from glory to glory. It's a growth process. Sanctification is a process. And by the way, that's in our court. We draw near to Him as much as we want. God does not force that upon us. The more we behold our Lord, the more we reflect His light. Christ said, I am the light of the world. And so whose light are we actually shining? It is reflecting the light of Christ in our life because we're being transformed into His image and likeness. And thank God, hallelujah, one day we will totally be in His likeness. 1 Corinthians 15, 49, And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even also as I am known. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Matthew 13, 43, Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Who hath ears to hear, let them hear. What a day that's going to be, amen? This robe of flesh will drop and I'll rise. And I'll no longer disappoint my Lord through my sinfulness. So as we leave Stephen here tonight before the council at the end of Acts 6 with his face as it had been the face of an angel, I want to ask you in closing, whose image and likeness are you bearing? Who do you spend the most time with? Are you spending time in the Word of God beholding Him? Or do you look into the perfect law of liberty and forget what manner of man you are? We're to shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. God must be our portion. We must dwell in God's presence. We must have God's Word in our hearts. May we draw closer to Him tonight and resolve to spend more time with the God who gave everything for us to be able to approach into His presence. You can commune with Him closer than you ever have. But it's your choice. Maybe you just need some discipline. Maybe it means putting away the games at night so you can get up on time. And we could give all kinds of examples. Let's pray.